Daniel Nowak, author of Political Acceptance, A Millennial's Manifesto, a book of understanding and acceptance of one's own views. In today's episode, I will sit down with Daniel, where him and I will talk about his upcoming book, the similarities and differences in thoughts on the hottest political topics, and his own shifts regarding his political ideologies. Daniel will offer us a rare insight into the mind of an author that, that has experienced turmoil and now has an understanding and acceptance and how that defines his political beliefs. My name is Jonathan Hewitt and Patriots. This is the Conservative Voice Show. All right, Daniel. So I know that I know a little bit about you from our conversations and about your new book, but if you could do me a favor and just introduce yourself and tell the audience a little bit about who you are and where you come from, and then obviously where you plan on going in the future. Yeah, sure. So my name is Dan Nowak. I'm from Racine, Wisconsin, uh, which is in between Chicago and Milwaukee, uh, southeastern Wisconsin. Um, I'm a business uh, professor. I'm, I'm pursuing my doctorate uh, in business administration. And I wrote a book. It's called Political Acceptance, a Millennial Manifesto. And uh, it's coming out in the next couple of weeks here. So I'm super proud of it. I think it turned out really great, but uh, I appreciate you, John, for having me on. Yeah, man, of course, I'm, I'm really excited just for the idea that it's not very often that you see young people writing about politics. It's normally an older man's game. So I really enjoy the idea that you are younger and you are a millennial, same as I'm a, a millennial. And I really enjoy the idea that you wrote a book, whether we agree on it all or disagree on it all, or somewhere in the middle. I, that's definitely a feat to be mentioned. Uh, how long did it take you? And did you like hit any bumps along your way while writing it? Sure. So when I first started off, I, I was just writing things down that came to me. Uh, I started writing during the 2016 election and, you know, very contentious election. And honestly, I didn't know how I felt about certain topics. And the, I was I had a bit of a, a crisis in my life in terms of having a midlife crisis uh, in my early 30s, uh, in part because I, I just had a daughter and I was transitioning from being like a like a, a man child to to being a man with a child, so that responsibility <laughs> like like it was it was I mean for people who don't have kids and then just to have one I, I was always terrified of having a kid. My my wife tricked me into it. Um, I'm glad that she did. Uh, it's been the best thing ever. Uh, but at the time, I I was having a bit of a midlife crisis, so. Um, I was just doing some kind of free writing, just whatever would come to mind. And I didn't know what I, my, my, my kind of my beliefs were. So, you know, writing can be very therapeutic. And the more I wrote, the more I, I, I discovered things. Um, I did a lot of reading, self-reflection, and um, I learned, you know, it, it, there's, I, I, I learned some things about myself I didn't know. And um you know, it took me about three years to write it kind of on and off, uh, you know, just in my free time. Okay. That's awesome, man. I, I'll tell you that that's pretty quick for writing a book, I think. Like that's, and I think that that speaks volume of how much work put into it as it wasn't hastily put together and then hastily 
edited and published. I mean, I'm going to assume that it's safe to say that you had a lot of reflection and a lot of self-reflection. Yeah, for sure. I mean, the part, I mean, part of it was I was, I mean, I, I was kind of in a bad place. I was unemployed. Uh, I had just, I had gotten fired from a job two months before my daughter was born. And I really was like, wow, you are just like a deadbeat dad loser. You know, like what is, what the hell is wrong with you? You can't even hold a job. And, um, part of the reflection is I also quit, uh, quit drinking during that time, which also, um, I talk about in the book being just a ridiculous challenge like that. I'm very happy that I've, I went through, um, it's been four years since I uh, was was drinking. I was a big heavy drinker, um, alcoholic, all the, the whole deal. So, um, you well, know, congratulations. That, yeah, man, thanks. It's been. I mean, it's, I can't believe it's been four years. But uh, um, so, yeah, I mean, it, it was. Writing is extremely therapeutic. I can't, you know, even if it's just free writing, just sitting down and just writing things out. Because until you write it down, uh, you don't really know what you think. So. In your book, and I was lucky enough that you provided me a short bit of it to look over, which I thought was intriguing, and I found an intrinsic intrinsic value in it that I did not expect. And I've talked to you offline about my expectations and how well the book delivered in the sense yeah. of the writing style. But what I wanted to bring up is in a portion of it, near the very beginning, you talk about how millennials, we've lost our youthful optimism. Yeah. What do you, what do you mean? Do you mean just in personal life, in business, politically, what optimism are we no longer having? Yeah. I mean, I, I think that, you know, growing up, we had a free spirit. We weren't burdened with all this political turmoil. You know, we grew up when, you know, we were nineties kids, you know, just living life, you know, just having fun. Um, we weren't burdened by, you know, you know, on the new, we weren't watching scrolling through Twitter or Facebook all day long. You know, we didn't have cell phones in our hands. You know, we were just, we were just kids. There was no Soviet union, nuclear Holocaust apocalypse threat. You know, we didn't have to deal with that. We didn't have to deal with, you know, Vietnam or, you know, all these, you know, so we, we grew up in kind of just a happy go lucky time. And, you know, as we got older, I think, you know, we, we lost some optimism about like the things we we're capable of doing or um, what's realistic in terms of like life goals. And um, I, I, I don't know if it's just social media, if it's the politics today, but it does seem millennials just in general are morose. I don't know. They're just not as excited about the future as that they that that we once were. I, I know when I look at my friends, just they just look like God. Wow, life is just this life just sucks right now. Just like just in general, no one's happy. You know, COVID obviously didn't help anything, but like, um, <laughs> know, right? you, know, you know, just like like everyone's just like, what the fuck? Like why? Like growing up was so amazing. Why does like life just just in general just blow right now? You know, so like I do think that we did lose something. And, um, you know, that's, that's part of the reason why I wrote the book is that I think people are in denial. Uh, you know, the main theme of the book I would say is, is people being in denial about certain things. Um, I know for me, that was the case. I was extremely in denial about a lot of different things. And, you know, in my book, um, you know, 
one of those things is I think when you're younger, you know, you're kind of naive about a lot of things and, you know, your political beliefs grow as you, as you, as you age and as you learn and as you experience life. So, um, yeah, I mean, I definitely think this has been a, a really great journey and I'm, um, I'm happy that, uh, I'm hope I'm happy to, I'm hoping to change the millennials opinions on things. So. Well, here's what I'm going to tell you. And I think that that evaluation is probably one of the strongest ones that I've heard is it is, there is so much just like down, just like pessimism, I guess. you Yeah. Could, negativity. Yeah. All over the world. But what I want to do is I'm sure that you have an idea on how to change that view. And what I'm going to do is that's going to be the very last question I ask you. Sure. So listeners, make sure that you stick around so you can hear Daniel's ideas and what we need to do moving forward to ensure that we keep that optimism. And you mentioned there that your political, as you age, your political like goals and beliefs change. How would you yeah. say your political views have like changed over the time? Yeah, so, um, I mean, abortion is probably the biggest one that has moved. Uh, you know, growing up, uh, I was deathly afraid of having kids. And, um, you know, part of it is, like, growing up, I talk in my book where, you know, teen pregnancy was, like, a huge thing. And the schools, like, scared the hell out of you. It's like, you have a kid, your life will be fucked up. You might as well just your life is just ruined forever. And, you know, big, you know, big time scare tactics. And I, that was me. I, I was deathly afraid to have kids. Even in my thirties, I was super scared to have kids. And, you know, for me, like for abortion specifically, it's like, man, if I get a, a, a chick knocked up, I want, I want them to have an abortion, you know, like I don't want to be a dad. I, you know, my, my political belief was based on fear. It wasn't based on any sort of like rational or like, thoughtful or like moral reasons. Right. Um, you know, also like there was a lot of, you know, there was a book that, that there's a, there's kind of a famous book called Freakonomics that also I was drawn to was like when abortion was legalized, crime started to go down. And like, you know, as a young person, it's like, who likes crime? Of course, abortion is amazing. Right? You know, of course that you should have these rights. So, you know, my, my views on it, started to change as I got older, because, you know, if when, when I had my daughter, you know, I, I actually got through, went through the process of, you know, watching an ultrasound and it's, it's a miracle of technology. It's hard to say with a straight face that, you know, third term trimester should be real, you know, like, like an option, uh, given that, you know, the baby is essentially moving around response to touch like 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 it'd have to be like a dire emergency or like the mother is like dying or something but like there's there's advocates especially on the left that still believe that it's like you know good or like reasonable um you know finding out like at 10 weeks like you know if it's a boy or a girl like i didn't know how you could tell that early like that's still in the first trimester so like i used to be extreme zealot for like pro-abortion, you know, basically because I was afraid of having a kid. And um, that's, you know, as I've gotten older, I've learned and I've grown, like, it's clear that 
abortion is extremely morally questionable in, in a lot of respects. Um, you know, in the book, like I give an example of someone that I know where they, they had like a second term abortion because of like a ridiculous, rare uh, medical condition. And like, you know, that's understandable to a certain extent, except it's still like, it's tough. Like it's, I think liberals just in general have a harder case for that because the medical problem that the baby would have died in child, you know, as it hit third trimester and, and it was delivered. But, you know, that's it's shake your ground to be on uh, then as opposed to just, you know, letting things naturally happen and, and you know, proactively ending the, the, the pregnancy. So it's, I think in just general terms, like that's just something that I've, I've learned more about. And um, I think it's something that I've just, Grown, from yeah growing on for sure i want to take a moment real quick i think we'd be remiss if we didn't just take a moment to just dive in to the topic of abortion just a little bit deeper because yeah. there's so many opinions on abortion there's so many it seems like everybody you meet has a different opinion on it and i think that the left has a very uh, like obscure vision on like women's rights and things like that so for me for instance I believe that life happens at conception yeah. and that abortion is in a lack of a better term, murder of an, another living thing or another living being. Cause it is a conglomerate of cells that then grow into being the miracle that is life. Um, yeah. With that being said, I do share with you the same idea of that abortion is not an option unless there's a medical emergency that's going to kill the parent or I believe that if there's a product of some form of sexual assault, I don't believe that that yeah. mother should have to live with that. Yeah. And I think that you share in that. My question, I guess I will pose to you is, do you agree or disagree with the idea that women should have rights over their own body? Or do you think that there is a difference to be made in the rights of their own body to there is to killing? Yeah, I guess my my gen i'm i'm more of a paternalist uh by nature so i'm more comfortable with the government or you know democracy uh dictating um the laws of the land so i'm i'm more comfortable uh with rights being restricted in in many cases i just i think personally i just i i do think it is in terms of ethically very nebulous to, uh, I think again, liberals have a much harder case to make in this respect. I never, I think the women's rights to choose or framing abortion as, as healthcare is, is it's, it's, a, it's a tougher sale to make. I think your argument is more straightforward. I just, I think practically that, I, I still don't think that the baby or the in the first trimester is I, I still think it's okay. I mean I, again I, I'm not I'm not going to wave the flag and say that it's the best thing ever, but 
I'm okay with the first first trimester, second trimester, as long as there's a good reason. Third trimester, it's I, I I'm like I'm kind of moving to the position where like a I think some legislators have had like a 24 week ban or like a 22 week ban. Like once you get to that range, it really is it's there's a heartbeat the you know you, you there's a lot i think part of it is the science has just gotten more advanced as, as the years have gone on um so i think that i can agree and not that i agree i don't believe any abortion is right yeah, but I guess I can yeah. accept that your understanding of it and that um that like ban i i know that there's some in some states where in some medical facilities you can get a a um a sex of the child at like 17 or 18 weeks yeah. yeah, you're looking at like what, just over four months. So just yeah. inside the first trimester, that you're finding yeah. out the sex of your baby. And yeah, you can you can find out pretty early. I mean, twelve weeks you can definitely find out the sex of a baby. I think it's my friend that they got it at twelve weeks, maybe even ten weeks. It's just uh, you know, it's it's a difficult. Uh, it's 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 one of those things where it'd be interesting to see. If like for whatever reason, one way or the other, if abortion was just off the table completely in terms of like, okay, it's been settled, there will be no more talk of abortion, how much that would like change the political landscape? Like how many people would become more conservative versus because I, I think it is like the number one issue for many people in that I have a friend where they're probably liberal on every single issue you can find, except abortion, they are steadfast life uh, pro-life. And they'll always vote Republican, you know, on that one issue. So it is definitely uh, a tough thing. Um, I think that the that along with the four three other topics we'll talk about today are very push button items, and I think a lot yeah. of it could be said that a lot of things is that the political world now is more polarized than I think I've ever seen it. At least in my twenty seven years of being here. Yeah. It is more polarized than ever before. And I think abortion is one of the most polarizing ideas about the same with gun control, which we'll talk about later. And I think the welfare state as well as polarizing just because of unemployment and the different variables that in public policy that happens in that. I guess the last question about abortion that I have for you yeah. would be, we talk about the legalization versus the prohibition of abortion Earlier, you mentioned that you believe that abortion is a brings in the question of morality, and there's a lot of morality to be asked about it. In America, we base our laws based on morals, on a, a set of morals and ethics that we as a conglomerate or citizenry deem to be acceptable or not acceptable. Like yeah. we say murder's bad, and we don't yeah. want people to murder people. So murder is illegal, or we don't want people stealing our property. So, so larceny is illegal. Do you think that there is an argument to be made in the complete prohibition of it based on the morality of abortion itself? So I would say no. Uh, for I mean, probably for a couple of reasons, but the first that comes to mind is that, you know, I think America is very strong on minority rights uh, in the sense that we're not a majoritarian country. The majority can't just dictate and tell people what to do all the time. Um, so, you know, it's just an example. I mean, there's, you know, California has two senators, Wyoming has two senators. 
you know, is that right or not right? Well, it's just part of it is the bargain of America, which is we are a minority. We, we respect the rights of minorities to make decisions. I mean, I think just recently the Supreme Court handed down some decisions related to can churches opt out of certain, um, uh, it was it was a child donation or uh, I'm sorry, adoptions. And the church, there's a church in Philadelphia that didn't want to participate with gay, uh, with gay couples. And the courts unanimously uh, agreed that they can, there's, they can have religious objections. So, you know, that might be a minority position that some may think is wrong or immoral, but I do think that if living in a free society that if someone wants to have an abortion and they don't have a moral objection to it, they should be able to get an abortion legally and safely. Um, so. I don't mean to um, question it. And then I would say, then that means that you still see lean a little liberal on the idea of abortion, even though. So, yeah. so yeah, I mean, I, I would say I'm, I still lean liberal, definitely, in terms of if I had to say I'm still pro-choice in that sense. I do think that I'm more open to the idea of some of what liberals would call extremely restrictive or repressive. Like there's some laws that were passed that were very controversial uh, related to ultrasounds before you have an abortion where they were they were making women look at the ultrasound first. And there was a lot of commotion and yelling. Um, I think, you know, maybe that's more, I think in terms of political position, maybe that's more reasonable than I had originally had thought. Um, I also think that potentially third term abortion should be extremely rare or not an option unless there's an emergency. So, you know, I think I went from someone who would have been marching down the street on one of those parades uh, to, you know, with Planned Parenthood sending the money to someone who has, you know, evolved a lot on it. Do you believe in taxpayer funded abortion or do you believe that because we don't get to decide where our taxes go? If they, like for me, I have a moral, a moral objection to abortion. Yeah. In my tax money I mean, on abortion. I mean, our, our tax money is decided by elective representatives. Agreed. And so at a point we do have, uh, you know, we do have say, I mean, I wish we would spend less money on overseas troops, but like, I mean, we don't always get what we want, you know, so like. That's true. And that was just an off-ball question that just came to my head. Like, yeah. Talking about it. So, with the next topic, I guess, is we'll go to the completely other side of, we'll skip healthcare for now. Yeah. And we'll talk about welfare. I, and this yeah. is a really big for me right now. I think for a lot of Americans, a lot of the viewers, a lot of the listeners, that this is going to be a really, really big item because you have right now, you have a government that shuttered a lot of businesses and yeah. rose the unemployment rate as people get on unemployment. Unemployment is the number one cause of homelessness 
and welfare. Right. And so I think that we'd be remiss if we didn't talk about it. Sure. And so what was your original stance on welfare? I guess, so, I mean, I'll tell you just a little bit about the story I tell in the book is that, so I, uh, I mentioned that I, you know, I, I'm an alcoholic and I, I started to go to AA and I contrast the help that I got in AA with the help that I got when I was on unemployment. So I had gotten fired from, so <laughs> I got fired five times in like eight or nine years. I'm really good at, at getting fired from things. Um, and like I was on unemployment and since, you know, I didn't have a job, I didn't have any income, I was like 25. So I, you know, I applied for food stamps too, because I mean, I had, I had no money and I had, uh, you know, why not? Right. And, you know, the, the hoops that I had to jump through, which um, are becoming more and more prevalent, you know, work history, some states have even looked at drug testing. Um, it's demeaning and demoralizing. Um, you know, I went to a job fair recruitment, like a job fair required by uh, the city of Milwaukee. And it was, it was sad. I mean, like I had to sit through a three hour PowerPoint presentation and it was, is it, it was, as I had, was like a high school freshman who had never had a job before. I was like, this is a resume. You know, this is how you apply for a job. Like, you know, three hours of PowerPoint of just the most demeaning, insulting. And like, you know, same thing with the food stamps. It's like, I would be, you know, I, I was, the job I had gotten fired from, I was like a branch manager at a bank. I thought I was a hot shot. You know, I, you know, I have my MBA, you know, and now I'm in the grocery store line buying stuff with food stamps. It's like, it was demeaning. And after a while, I didn't even want to file for benefits because it was just like, you know, like I felt like just a piece of crap. And, you know, what, what I talk about in the book is that like, in AA and I think in, you know, and I think in religious institutions as well, you know, help is just unconditional. If I were to walk into a church and say, I need help, like they wouldn't, they wouldn't ask, they probably wouldn't ask it one question other than what help do you need? And I do think our welfare system should be more, have that mindset. And I think where, you know, you know, obviously if you just provide unlimited help at a certain point, it becomes unhelpful, right? Like if, you know, it could make things worse and it is difficult to kind of to, to thread that needle, but you know, the amount of unemployment or the amount of like homelessness in America is just like flat unacceptable. Like the number of people who just are, you know, abject poverty are just, it's, you know, it's just, there are just some things that are just unacceptable that should just not be allowed and we should feel bad about. And, you know, with welfare, you know, we don't want to disincentivize people from, you know, either working or finding, you know, a meaningful life. But at the same time, like, it shouldn't be demoralizing, uh, you know, so it's, it's, it's a difficult uh, needle to thread. So, I guess my first, I have four questions that I'd like to yeah. ask. Sure. Um, and I guess I will start off with the one of them is more of a statement. And I guess I can get your opinion on it. Yeah. You, um, 
classify or you said that going to those courses were demeaning. Now, obviously for you, you have an MBA, you're educated, I'm educated, but for a wide people, a wide array of people on unemployment, they may not know what a resume is. You don't need a resume to work at a fast food restaurant. If they worked at a fast food restaurant and then came unemployed, I guess my question is, is it truly demeaning or does it, could it serve some education purpose and just your perception because of who you are? It was demeaning. Yeah. I mean, I just think just in general, like holding, like, I imagine like a dog, like you're holding a treat over the dog saying, here's your unemployment check, like stand on your hind legs. Like, do you need this food? Yes, you do. You know, like uh, that, like, to me, that's the the thought behind it. I don't know if it's just because these seminars in particular were not well executed or what have you. It just, I think that the idea of, you know, a universal basic income makes more sense to me than say like raising the minimum wage, just because we should have a standard of living that is like a basic standard of living. If people want to work 10 hours a week, you know, or 20 hours a week, you know, that should be like morally acceptable along with like a basic income. So like welfare, the way it's designed now in terms of like food stamps, or if you want to apply for like, if you don't mind, I'm just going to interrupt you yeah. right there. And I just want to, and so I just want to make sure that I understand. Yeah. And the viewers understand. So you are an advocate or a proponent for just a universal income just across the board, whether you work 10 hours a day or you work 20 hours a day, you believe that everybody should be making the exact same amount of money. No, no. I mean, I'm, I'm open to the idea of universal basic income. I, I think that might be a better way than like the, our current welfare system. I, I don't think that if I work 10 hours a week, I should make as much as someone who works 30, 50 hours a week. I, I don't believe that at all. But I guess what I'm saying is when, when people got the stimulus checks, people pretty much, I mean, some families got more because they had more people in their family, but like everyone got the same amount. And I think there is a level of like fairness and like satisfaction when it comes to that, as opposed to, we have well, satisfaction because it's free. Well, yeah, I mean, it's just if they would have said with the stimulus checks, well, if you make $12 an hour, you get a stimulus check. If you make $15 an hour, you don't like people wouldn't have been happy with that. Right. It's it wouldn't be fair. So if like I guess my, my sentiment is that. If we are going to do wealth distribution and we want to attack issues of poverty, I believe that a non-shame-based approach is better, I guess is what I'm saying. And I can I can agree with the idea that it should not be shameful. I think there is just some inherent shame in understanding that the rest of the world is working. Yeah. Or a great majority of the shame is working and you're trying to get help from the government. I, I, I think that there is unfortunately just human nature and inherent shame to that. Yeah. Um, you mentioned yeah, and, yes. yeah, it doesn't necessarily need like to me it like I guess I, I, can, I don't want the, I don't want the government really to pass like moral judgment on you. Like it's it's difficult because like I don't know. It, it's it's I think that what the the argument that you're making is that there is a that 
the feelings that you have to towards something is being dictated by the government's policy to yeah. have it. And I think that that's an identity-based argument. Your emotions towards something has nothing to do with the facts behind the policy that's being enacted. I don't think that if they make you do drug testing, for instance, I don't think that that is inherently shameful. That's people who work full-time have to go through drug testing. I don't think that ensuring that you are doing, taking the steps to get off of welfare is shameful. It's not, like I said at the beginning, I, I think that that is an identity argument that's hard to make politically in the idea of public policy. Yeah, I mean, with the drug testing, I think is like, as someone who struggled with addiction and like having a drinking problem, like in theory, it would make sense to to drug test people, but like that isn't going to that isn't going to change their behavior. Like it just it just won't. It, it just instead they're just not going to get the benefits, and it's just going to cause their behavior to get worse. Like if what would you rather have like someone who is struggling with those types of problems with zero money or some money? I I guess like. In my mind, like I'd rather have them have some money so they're not robbing or, you know, acting more desperate, I guess. Daniel, I know you don't know my history very well. Yeah. We didn't really get a chance to go over it. So I was a cop before. Yeah. My viewers know that. Um, anybody who knows me know that. And the one thing that I will say, and I don't know how aware you are, and I'm not here to question your intelligence, definitely not. Yeah. You have a master's and I do not, um, yeah. is that I saw a lot of drug addicts on yeah. welfare. Yeah, and I yeah. will tell you that they do not use that money to, I've seen drug addicts spend all of their money on, on narcotics yeah, and then go and steal from somebody to and steal food from somebody. Yeah. So, and then, and I'm not saying it's was with everybody, like, like yeah. we smoke marijuana, like, like where I live, Oklahoma, medical yeah. marijuana is legal. Yeah. It's just the way it is. Um, I'm not saying every drug addict is doing that. Yeah. But there, like you said, I think there's a balance that has to be sought. And yeah, I mean, why should but, somebody who who is receiving money from the government not be yeah. drug tested when they're not working and receiving free money? Yeah. While people who work 40 hours a day in a like ball buster job yeah. are being drug tested at random. I yeah. feel like there's a little bit. And I think that it, what it does too is, and you can agree or disagree with this, I think is that it gives the American people a little bit of like a good feeling knowing that their their money is going to something good and that it's not being used yeah. incorrectly. I mean, I mean, I think those people are good. I mean, like I was a, a complete piece of shit for many years and I would like more people to, you know, become good and not drug addicts. Um, you know, denying them, you know, like one of my best friends growing up, he developed a cocaine addiction. He spent most of his twenties in jail. And I, I recently ran into someone who told me that he's just living on the streets of Chicago and the, is like homeless. And I'm like, well, fuck, you know, like, obviously like to your point about like the drug testing people who are working, like, I mean, I honestly, I know this might sound crazy. I actually think that might be more reasonable. I mean, like if you're a person who's a crane operator and has like a million 
you know, a, a giant crane where if they were high, they could actually like blow right. something up as opposed to someone just sitting at home doing nothing. I, I mean, think there was a DOT law actually to that. Yeah. I think there so, is. So, I mean, drugs, like, I think just in general, like the war on drugs has skewed like the public's denial over like we have a drug problem as just as a, as a country, like in terms of like drugs and alcohol, like all of those things, like they're like good and, you know, fine and great and moderate use. But like, there's, I mean, there's a lot of people that don't, don't go that way. Well, know? I can hundred percent agree. And I, and I'm not saying that people who do drugs are bad. I have yeah. known, I have had good conversations with opioid addicts, with, drug addicts, pill addicts. I've had good conversation with people who smoke crack like yeah. in my time. Like I'm not saying that they're inherently bad. I'm just saying that providing them money without providing them taxpayer funded money. Well, I mean without some form of ensuring that they're not using that I don't care. Them. Like I don't care what they do. Like is like if I'm giving my taxpayer dollars to someone who has asked for help, like, you know, the government, if it's possible, should be smarter in the sense that, like, to me, as I'm more of like a paternalist, I, I think they should become more involved in their lives in terms of like, you know, getting them an apartment or like, like finding, like creating a government job just to give to them. Like, I don't know, like, I feel like that, that takes us like, down a very, very dangerous road. I think you can agree. Yeah. I mean, as, I, I don't necessarily agree. I mean, I'm like. Just think I mean, as you expand the, the government, as yeah. the government continues to put its hands in the cookie jar and all these different cookie jars, these, the span of the government gets bigger and bigger. And naming yeah. a country in history that as the government gets larger, it doesn't can. It take it gives back the power that it's already taken. There's no yeah. historical context for that. I think that's a, a dangerous, dangerous road. Um, and that brought me actually to my third question: Is it the government's job to address that homelessness or not that homeless that unemployment? So Is it the government's responsibility to ensure that somebody has a job. Yeah, I mean, again, like the government is whoever we say it is. I mean, it's 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 elected representatives appointed by people. So like if, if a certain area, I mean, if a certain area, if like my hometown votes and says that homelessness should be, you know, preventing homelessness should be a major problem. I absolutely think so. I mean, in general, um, I think that it is should, I think that is specifically, I mean, maybe the government shouldn't be involved in some aspects of life, but it's a public problem and it should be addressed by, by the public and our public representatives. I think there's an argument to be made that it should fall on the state and county level government. Yeah. I don't believe that it is a federal government's responsibility. And I believe that in a lot of things. I believe that the federal government is, should have minimal impact. And that you and I, when we have our issues, should be turning to, like you said, that public, like one to each other, yeah, because we're a community, to each yeah. other for help. And then if we have things that we need to address in our state, our state representatives, like that should be where the majority of our problems come from. Not necessarily the federal government. I don't think that it's the federal government's responsibility to ensure that Joe Blow down the street has a job. I don't 
that was never intended. And it was yeah. because it was intended that people were going to work, work hard for what they wanted in the founding. I think that that's a, so I do think there is an argument to be made on your side that a portion of government should be involved in it. Yeah. I mean, I mean, beyond, like, I just think it's, I think it's, it's in the public interest. It's the moral right thing to do. And it probably would save money. All, I mean, so if you, there's like a strong argument all three ways for it. Are you meaning on a, on a bigger federal impact or for the small governments to take more initiative into the problem? I mean, if I have a choice between federal money being spent on, you know, aircraft carriers or homelessness, I'm going to pick homelessness or, you know, corporate tax breaks versus homelessness, I'm going to pick homelessness. So like if the federal government has a set budget and I think that they should spend less on things that I, that are, I think homelessness and welfare, I think are more, are are completely acceptable and good to fund from the federal government than, you know, I I mean, I I think it's, I think it's a, it's a worthy moral, I think it's morally justified. I think it's within the scope of the federal government. And at the same time, I also think it would potentially save money instead of these people causing problems and causing nuisance, we could rehabilitate them, put them in a better place, make them more productive members of society. So, I mean, I think- what would I? What would you do if I told you that homelessness and welfare usage is higher in states with a liberal or more yeah. Democrat view on welfare? So, state, so states and cities that are ran by Democrats and have a looser welfare state system, yeah. like as a whole. I don't. Know, I mean, I guess it doesn't really bother me. Have a but higher yeah. rate of unemployment than those that are ran by conservative governments that restrict unemployment. I think there's an I think there's something to be said there that as you loosen and give people more and more money, it's not helping the homelessness and it's not helping unemployment. Actually, it's worsening it in public policy. And that's, I guess, my question is that there is, if you, I did a show Monday actually, yeah, where I compared Los Angeles to Fort Worth, one of the largest Democrat-led cities and one of the largest Republican-led cities. Yeah, and the amount of homelessness is vastly different. I think there's like 41,000 people homeless in um, LA right now suffering. And there is 2000 people homeless in the Fort Worth area. And those have starkly different public policy ideas. Yeah. I mean, I I, I don't really know. I mean, that's probably a good stat, but I guess what I would say is you know, maybe if we're instead of giving money directly to people, I mean, we should just have more housing, more affordable housing, and then they would, you know, not be homeless. You just this is your house, this is your apartment. You don't have to pay anything for it. It's yours. I mean, I think that is a better path potentially. Um, you know, I, I can't really say which state is doing a better job than others. I just know that. Housing in general, um, you know, a book that I would strongly recommend besides my own fabulous book. Um, is Which called- if you haven't already um, <laughs> pre-ordered it, you should go to Amazon. I'm telling yeah. you, I am, uh, go get it. Um, is a book called Evicted um, by Matthew Desmond, I believe it's called. And it's probably one of the five best books I've ever read. And it talks about the problems of housing and um, 
it won. I think it won the National Book Award. I mean, it's just it's buy my book and buy that book, and you'll be good. So, all right. <laughs> so let's move on to our next topic. And it's a topic that I'm really, really passionate about. Yeah, actually, and I think a lot of Americans are. I know for sure my viewer base, just as who we are, yeah. is, is going to be gun control. Sure. And I know that in your book you talk about your shift from less liberal ideas of gun control to more conservative views of gun control. Yeah. So as we've started every single talk, like segment here that we've talked about, yeah. where'd you start and where'd you end up? So I guess I'll, I'll tell, I'll tell you know, kind of a brief story. So in, in 2012, I had three, like three instances related to like gun violence, like per, like two personal, one not personal. So the first one was I got, I got shot at by a random person. Um, just a random act of violence shot at just me and my three friends. Luckily, like I felt the bullets whizzing past my face. It was like, you know, like in the matrix that, you know, you see the spinning bullet. I felt the heat wash over my face. It was that, that fucking close to my face. I don't know, actually the the bullet's so hot. I don't know how close it actually was, but I, I felt the heat wash over my face. It was that close. Um, and then like a week later, like Newtown happened the Newtown shooting. And then two weeks after that, I, I'm a, I'm a branch manager at a bank and we get robbed at gunpoint and he points the gun, maybe like an inch from his head. Like it is like right, right there. Like, you know, I'm going to fucking kill you. Give me your fucking money, all this shit. And so like when I like on a four week span, I had like these three things like happen and like, I, I was, I was, I was pissed. You know, I would have, I would have marched on, I would have done one of those. I would have marched. I would have spent every last dollar. You know, if, if it, like if the NRA would have exploded in a building, I would have probably cheered, you know, the whole thing. Like I was, I was fucking pissed, you know, and I definitely was a zealot for like gun control and all the rest. And, you know, I, the, 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 the weird thing about Newtown specifically is that, it's like the most horrific thing that could possibly happen. It, they're really like, it's like an, an American embarrassment, like 26 year olds just get fucking shot. It's like fucking ridiculous. And like the weird thing about it though, is that like I talk about in the book, like after that happened and after no real gun control legislation happened after that, like the moral, the moral like case or like the moral structure for gun control, it kind of just like fell apart. Like if, if nothing will happen after Newtown, like fucking nothing will happen. Like this just like, this is it. Like we've just got to fucking like live with it. Um, like, like that, that was like kind of my, like at first it was like, a, I'm like, it was almost defeatist. Like my response was like defeatist, like, like, you know, Obama, you know, gave these speeches. He was, he was crying. He was like upset. He was like going to do something. Of course, nothing happened. Like nothing fucking happened. And I was pissed, you know, and, but like, like, what are you going to do? Like the Congress isn't going to do anything significant. It was just like fucking awful. And like where I like, so this, this is where I started. I, you know, I was really fucking pissed and like, the getting shot at and like the, the bank robbery, like, I mean, all this like back to back, back. What, what ended up like, like oddly was that like, I went to my father-in-law is from Belarus. 
My wife is from Belarus. Their family still lives in Belarus. And what happened was I, I moved or I went to visit them for the first time. And we, we did like a whole Europe journey. So if you don't know where Belarus is, imagine Germany. To the right of that is Poland. To the right of that is Belarus. To the right of that is Russia. So it's uh, Belarus, Belarusia. I was part of the Soviet Union. So my, my wife was born Soviet. And um, as an aside, you know, my wife is a pretty conservative, just partly because of that. She, uh, growing up in Soviet Union, um, is, 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 has that disposition. But so we went, we did this giant Europe trip and we did a couple of things. Um, the first one was we, we went, we actually went to Poland for a, a different reason because we knew someone in Poland. We we're going to stop in Poland. We went to Poland. And when I went to the TripAdvisor, I typed in like, you know, what can we do in Poland? And we were an hour away from the, the Holocaust, you know, from the museum, the whole thing. You know, my, my original idea was like, okay, I'm going to go drink beer, eat food, you know, going to the Holocaust. I've never heard anybody having a bad time drinking beer and eating burgers. I'm just saying. Yeah. Yeah, I know. I like going to the Holocaust Museum was not really on my like to do list, right? So, but yeah, I, I went. That. Yeah, I, I went, right? And it's, I mean, it's, it's, it's a, it's a crazy experience going there. It's like hollow. It's like I don't know, hollowed is the right word, but hollowed ground. I mean, it's like really. It's a, it's a, it's a kind of a life changing experience. And like after that, I, I read a lot on a lot about history in terms of like totalitarian governments. Um, I read a bunch about like Soviet because my wife is Soviet. I kind of got interested in that kind of stuff. I uh, read about the gulag, th those kinds of things. And like, I, I do think there is some merit to the democratization of firearms in terms of the government not having a monopoly on them. Um, and then what kind of, what even brought it further home was that my wife's country, she doesn't live there anymore, but her parents do. Belarus has fallen under, I mean, they live under a dictator. And if you're, if you haven't followed the news in the last year, um, the, the, they had a sham election that was like completely sham. I mean, if you're going to sham election, say you win like 60%, you don't say you win 90%, right? And there was mass protests. And in response to the protests, the the dictator cracked down. They started capturing people, torturing people. Uh, if you said anything bad on the internet, you know, basically the government would come to your house and black bag you. And, you know, that's, it's terrifying. And, you know, at first I was optimistic. Like there were so many protests. They'd have a million people in the streets. You know, things are changing. Things are going to, you know, finally Belarus won't be under a dictator anymore. And it never happened. <laughs> you know, the, the, the free thinking, laughing, loving, you know, singing songs, it only goes so far at a certain point, like they have guns, they don't have guns. Who's going to win? Obviously they're going to. So like, I, I'm more sympathetic to the idea of a democratization of guns where people have it and there's not a monopoly in terms of government power. I guess like I still am more, much more open to the idea though of being higher standards than what they are now. I think personally, the age limit should probably just be raised. I mean, I was 21 and I was just a sick mad man. And there's just, 
men are just stupid when they're young. It just, it takes a while. Uh, they recently raised the tobacco age to 21. Like to me, the, the gun age probably should just be raised. And I, I mean, there's, there's other things with guns I probably personally do, but I'm more open to the idea that gun, gun owners are not lunatics. So <laughs> I, I will definitely agree being a gun owner myself that, that they are not yeah. lunatics. I think that, so I'm a constitutionalist and yeah. definitely an originalist. I believe yeah. very, very much so like you and I have video. You can see like the founding documents are never far yeah. from yeah. like my show and my wife and I, those are yeah. the things that we hold very, very near and dear to us. And the second amendment is very, very, very clear. Like there's no gray in that. The right to bear arms, it doesn't say shouldn't be, shouldn't say can be or could not be, it explicitly says, shall not be. There's something to be said, if you look at any of the other rights, like, yeah, they are all, yeah, but I mean, protect the person. And like you said, protecting the minority is what our government does. Our our whole constitution, declaration of independence, every founding document protects that minority. And so I will disagree with that portion. I, I definitely agree with your part of the, government not having a monopoly on it they should not yeah. they, the government should not be like anywhere involved in my opinion it besides I mean, the fact of like background checks i think there should be a background check because if you're a criminal you shouldn't have a firearm i 100 agree with that i do not agree the aging i mean the, the the second amendment i mean it, it says militia i mean the word militia is there i mean like if you wanted to tell me that if you wanted to own a gun, you need to belong to like a gun club or a some sort of group that like vouches for you. I would I would be much more comfortable with the idea with of like, you know, it just to not be, I guess, confrontational, but I'm going to disagree. Yeah. I'm gonna stop it there just for the simple fact is that um punctuation is very, very crucial in writing. And yeah. the Second Amendment has it has a right to a well-regulated militia, comma, the right of the people to bear arms. Not the right of the militia to bear arms. The right of the people yeah. to bear arms. That is very, very explicit. Yeah. That is a separated statement asserted in the Second Amendment. Yeah. I mean, you in terms of constitutional law and all the rest, obviously the law is on your side on that and has borne that out as we as people have more guns than ever. I just personally, if I, if I were in charge, I, I think we need higher standards. Like the, like the background check is, is not enough in my opinion. What would you I say th- we should do then? Cause like, so as just an example, like if let's say I have a son and let's say he's, he's 21 and I think he's troubled violent through all the rest. I believe as like a parent or as a responsible individual that someone should like, if he's making threats or he's, you know, like, you know, if if you read the book Columbine, the, 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 it's a, it's, it's actually like extremely well-written. It's, it's long, but it's like a page turner. It's the most infuriating book you'll ever read, which is like, you know, these kids, like an 18 year old basically bought, you know, all these, all these rifles 
And there was red flag after red flag. This guy was posting like hateful things on social media, uh, 1999's version of social media. So MySpace, you can still put music. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> you know, and like all of this, all of these things, this, this guy's named Eric Harris, clearly a psychopath. Like the FBI did like a profile him after the fact, like he met all the criteria. He's a psychopath. And like he, he, he was still in high school when he, you know, obviously when he shot up the high school, like there's just, you know, I, I just think prudentially and pragmatically. And I think that as a society, we can change the laws that were written. I mean, that's why that their amendments are amendments. Like we banned alcohol, we unbanned the, the ban, like, you know. Do you believe I, that the, the second amendment should be changed? I think, I definitely think that it, it, our current gun laws and the way that things are right now, it's just, un, the current level of gun violence in this country is just flatly unacceptable. So I have a I, question to you. Yeah. If you outlaw guns, let's just, we're just going to be, play like, uh, let's say that yeah. the, the 116th Congress, which I think we're in right now, or the 117th Congress, holds a constitutional convention and then decides that they're going to amend the constitution to rid it of the second amendment. Yeah. Right? Let's say that occurs. Let's say let's if that did happen, that means there'd be broad agreement across all the states. Like Texas agrees, everyone like let's just say if, if you're stipulating that, I mean yeah, like I will say that. That's fine. That I am saying that yeah. hypothetically if all the states agree. And yeah. or at least two-thirds of the states needed to ratify the constitution. Yeah. Do you think that there will be a decrease in gun violence? And the reason I pose that is because drugs are illegal. And yeah. there's rampant drugs in the country. Yeah. Importation of illegal firearms is illegal. Yeah. But the drug cartels are bringing firearms across the border in swaths. Yeah. And yeah. so do you think that it will lower gun violence or do you think that it unprotects the American people for both from bad people? Do I want to do them yeah. harm? And then obviously the government as well. I mean, I absolutely think it would lower gun violence. I do. Okay. That, that, that is your belief. I will say that you and I do not share the same sentiments in that. Yeah, I mean, I like I said, I, I think that there is merit to the, the idea that responsible people like, you know, you're a cop, I think. Was a cop, you know, no longer. You know, was, okay, was a cop. <laughs> you know, people that have shown some sort of community merit of some kind that people in the community have now vested you the power to, to have firearms. I think that would be, you know, fine and great. Um, it's just, you know, like the, the Las Vegas shooting where this, I mean, this guy shoots, I mean, like, you know, like, like 50 people get killed plus another 300 injured. And it's like, the next day, nothing happened. Like no one even knows this guy's name. Like, it, like, it, like that happened. Like that doesn't happen in, in like France or, I mean, I guess like terrorists did it, but like in Germany or like, yeah, I mean, it's just, I don't know. It just, Canada, it doesn't happen here. It happens. Like, I don't know. It, I think that Canada, they don't have that. They just have massive stabbings. I think there's a few weeks ago, like 25 people got stabbed. Yeah. I mean, and I think that, that, because again, I think the argument that we come to is that of morals and ethics. And you're talking about completely disarming a civil, a community or a country based on the fact that there are bad people in that country. I think that that is 
not a good argument to make. I think that yeah. the better argument to be made. I think, I mean, part of it is like, if well, someone. The better argument would be arm good people. Yeah. I mean, what I would say, what I would say is that if a swath of the population blows it for everyone else, then like you blew it for everyone else. Like, I mean, like if let's say like, I it just, I don't know. I, I definitely think that gun violence would go down. I mean, I, I don't, I think just in terms of the numbers game, like, I'm fine. I'd be fine with gun ownership if there was like stringent, like you had to like go through a process. People vouched for you, like you got approved. Like let's say, let's say like you like again, like you have a gun club, or if you had like insurance, like gun. Even if you had the gun holders insurance, where like an insurance company said, you know what, John, based on your background, we'll definitely give you gun insurance. Like what we have now is the the laws are just too loose in terms of. Um, in terms of standards, I just think we should have higher standards as a society. I think and, the topic and all the topics that we're going to talk about today is that I feel like your manifesto is very much, um, it's a manifesto. So it's your opinion based on your life experiences. And, yeah. and I think yeah. that a part that you do hit very, very well is that these conversations that you and I are having now, where yeah. there's understanding that's not rude. You're not being rude. I'm not being rude. Yeah. It's something that, is lost upon our country right now. Yeah. And I think that you cover it very, very well in that us millennials, we don't right now, we don't have the opportunity to be blissful. Yeah. I think that I can agree that with your book that we need to be optimistic. And I say yeah. that on both sides that the left has their side that they want to do. And there's going to be optimism on their side, just as those on the right have theirs. And I think that I just want to say that your book from what I've read does a very, very yeah. great great job in doing that and bringing to the light that now more than ever for whichever side you you believe on that it is contentious and it is toxic yeah and because i'm a firm believer like if the attitudes of today happened in 1776 we would not be here today because they didn't shut each other down there was a broad conversation on where the country should go. Yeah. Now I'm a Republican. You probably know that <laughs> by the name of the show, if nothing else. Right. Yeah. But even on stage, I'm, I was a fan of Donald Trump's policies, not necessarily his yeah. person. Yeah. Um, but even the debate between the presidents. Right. So the, yeah. the two people that we were going to vote for couldn't even have a respectful, just open dialogue. Yeah, the debate was horrible. (laughs) Well, yes, that was. I will still stand by my assertion then is that if Donald Trump would have debated the first debate, how he debated the second debate, he would have won again. But that's neither here nor there. His first debate. Trump Trump would have won if he didn't blow COVID. I I really believe that. If you just if you just would have been a little if you just been serious about it from the beginning, um, he would have sailed to reelection. But he he just blew it. I think that you and I will starkly disagree on COVID, I think. Yeah. But enough with gun gun control. I think I think that we yeah. I think that you and I do agree. I think there is that yeah. I I agree in the idea that there should be some form of vetting. Yeah. The gun control. Now the levels on that amount of vetting, I think, is where you and I are going to come in to our disagreement. Yeah. And I think that, that I do I I do appreciate your stories. Um yeah. being a cop and being shot at, I do understand that 
the ideas that go through your head when that happens, like the what the fuck yeah. moments that you get. Yeah. I guess our last one will be on a on another pretty hot button item in yep. the political world. And well, this one I'm going to convince you on. Okay, so you're going to change your you're, you're going to change your. Perspective I will remain open, this. but I promise you that I don't believe so. And so, okay. for the viewers, guys, our last one that we're going to go to is we're going to talk about healthcare, and obviously it'll start out the same way where Daniel will tell us about his start, where he goes, and then somewhere we'll have a conversation. We'll find what middle ground we have, what we agree on and disagree. So, Daniel, it's on to you, bro. Take it away. Okay. So this is probably, I don't know. It's interesting. I had a couple beta readers, and this is the one where I think it might be my worst written one and the one I got the most strong disagreement on. So it makes me think that either it's just just bad and I'm an idiot on it, or I'm like maybe on to something and it's crazy and it's maybe good. So, um, so the the chapter is called "Oaths Are Stronger Than Laws," and there are I, I guess I start off by just t- relating doctors to police officers and teachers. And I think that doctors should be more like police officers and they should be more like teachers. And where, where I guess where I go with this chapter is that I think that doctors have basically let the healthcare profession just run amok and they're no longer in control of the healthcare profession. Healthcare in general is just being run by bureaucrats and random people and, you know, a Byzantine of, of laws and problems and healthcare is just, it's just a big mess. Right. And what I talk about in the book is that there's a famous medical ethicist. I'm not saying this right. Ethicist. And he, he says, yeah, no, yeah. I can't say the word, but he essentially says that, you know, there's a couple different ways to look at, you know, how we were to structure healthcare is it a societal good or is it something that some people should take care of their, on their own? I mean, a simple thing. So if we think about this in terms of doctors, what, you know, if we ask them as just a collective group, you know, what would their answer be? And I think that their answer would be that doctors think that it's a societal good because if a, a patient comes into the ER with no ability to pay, the doctor is going to take care of that person. You know, if they're having a heart attack, they're going to treat them. If they've got some issue, they're going to treat them. They, they're not just going to say, they're not just going to push them out and leave them on the street, right? And that th- those are a medical oath that they subscribe to. And no matter, whatever laws that our government or the people want to pass, that certain professions, military, you know, you can pass certain laws. Some military people just won't follow the orders if they're unconstitutional, right? I will not have that. And I will even support that right there. Yeah, and they yeah. were talking about like gun laws and going door to door and taking guns. Yeah. I told them straight like you, you tell yeah. me to do that. You will get my badge. My God, I will not do yeah. it. Yeah. So that, that's what I'm saying. So like oaths are stronger than laws in that respect. Like some people, you know, if someone passes a law that feels illegal and I, I just think as a medical profession that healthcare is a societal good for a few reasons that people are who can't pay those the people who can't pay are going to have to pick up those costs it's a fact of business like if you know people walk into the emergency room for like a non or like a trivial problem and they get treated 
that gets passed on to me. It gets passed on to you. It doesn't matter if it, if we had a completely libertarian society, businesses would still charge us. We, we would still get passed on to those costs, even if the government had nothing to do with healthcare. Right? Like people get those costs will just get passed on to us, just like as a normal course of business. The question is, should the government fund or you know compensate essentially healthcare? Um, organizations for these for these people and I, I think morally yes they should you know and I think it makes more sense if we if we were to but my, my main argument here is that like I go further I go a little bit even further in this is that we we as a society have an obligation to be healthy um, and to take control of our ourselves and, and and be responsible for ourselves and if we don't want to you know, that's fine. If you want to be 300 pounds, glutton, all the rest, you know, that's your prerogative, but you're going to have to pay more for healthcare. And because you, your behavior is affecting society. And I guess where I, I would like to see doctors and organizations move towards more of that type of accountability where like I pay the same healthcare as someone who is obese, right? Like uh, we, we will not get charged different, right? And I, I don't think that necessarily should be the case. I think there should be some latitude. Like if I, if I were to get a life insurance policy, I'll get a, I'll have a better rate than someone who, you know, does not take care of themselves, right? So I guess where I'm going with this is that I think healthcare should be a societal good. And it's not, it's not always up to us as like democracies to dictate those terms. And I think as a profession, doctors should become more powerful. They should use their agency and they should transform our healthcare system uh, more. So uh, I, I'm not sure if I explained that the best, but I guess good. I'll turn it. And I will say, I have debated and spoke to a lot of people about healthcare, just yeah. because who I am. And I will, I will tell you honestly, that is probably one of the best arguments I've heard when it comes to a reason for socialized medicine. I think that, and I will commend you on that. Now, I will tell you, you did not convince me, but I will oh, say that. So as a, early. I can still, I can I have more arguments for well, it, but go well, ahead. Yeah. And, and, and I think that it was, I think it's good. I think that the way that the idea of it works, and I will reiterate it to the, a common theme that Anything that is socialized looks really, 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 really good on a piece of paper. Yeah. Really, really good. Like communism, if it wasn't for the greed and ambition of men, looks really, really good. But yeah, I mean, unfortunately, there's the greed and ambition of men that they call it. And so I will say that there's the same thing with that. I will agree that there needs to be something done. And I will agree that. But I do not believe that our answer is in socialized medicine. Well, this, I will say... I mean, uh, this uh, to to butt in here, like, like my background is business, yeah. so like, I'm definitely for free enterprise. The issue is, you know, I don't want to have to go to the, the hospital of the city of Milwaukee, right? I want to go to a like healthcare organization, and the question is, as a as a society, are we just going to let people who need medical treatment just not get it, or do we want them to? And I think at a certain level, the decision's not up to us. 
These medical these these organizations, these medical organizations are going to treat these people whether we like it or not. They're going to turn them away maybe in some aspects, but I think morally it's it's the right thing to do and sec and like the second part of it is the cost will be passed on to us no matter what. Like we're going to have to pay. I I every every idiot who goes to the emergency room for like a cold I'm paying extra on my healthcare. You're paying extra on your healthcare. Yes. If we have, I, said, I, I agree with you that there needs to be something done. Yeah. My, my, my question to you would be, is it well, and more of a statement that I'm going to assert is there's already a socialized medicine in America. Yeah. Medicare and Medicaid is still there for people who do not have healthcare. Obamacare is still around. I, I will remind yeah. everybody, Trump did not repeal Obamacare. Yeah. All he repealed was that if you didn't have insurance, you're not going to pay a fee on it when you file your next year's taxes. So there is still a socialized form of medicine for yeah. those that can't afford it. What I will say is, is that, for instance, I have a friend, a really, really close friend of mine that is from the UK. He lived in the UK. He was part of the British Royal Air Force. He came over here on orders when I was in the Marine Corps in South Carolina, the air station there, worked for the British Royal Marine, um, Air Force there, got out and then him and I worked at um, a company called Gulfstream together. If you don't know it, which I'm sure you do, UK has a socialized medical system. Sure. Under a socialized medical system, the care is absolute garbage. And the reason why is because, well, you can answer this actually, is that as competition decreases, yeah. so does the good or service. If I can, if I'm the only good or service here offering a service, then I can charge whatever. And the same with socialized medicine. If, yeah, if, I mean, if every single, if everybody has medical coverage given by the government, the government can then charge, let's say they want to charge increased taxes 400%, let's say, yeah. right? Because they own everything. Yeah. Or you can have an insurance system that, or have insurance companies that do two things. One, keeps the prices competitive because a socialized medical system is going to pay doctors garbage. That is why you see swarms of doctors leaving the UK to America where they're compensated according or better. I will say, I don't even know if it's accordingly because I don't know yeah. what they get paid. I think that, and I think you will agree with this part. What I'm going to say here is that right now, if you wanted to, let's say you will need insurance, where could you go? I mean, I mean, just as an aside, I mean, like our insurance should not be tied to our employers. It's just, it's just stupid. Like, it's just like an, something that inertia has built up. Like it's, if I could change one thing about healthcare, that would be it. Like if, if employers want to put money into like a special account and then- Like a health savings account? Yeah, like yeah. You know, like our problem is that like people are very limited on their choices in terms of what they can do. They're constrained and- that if that's the that, case, why would you want to limit it to just the government being having control? Well, I mean, like I, I mentioned, I, I'm not I'm not for the government running hospitals and, and these types of things. I, I'm I'm more for subsidies and like if you if you make let's say less than thirty thousand a year, the government will put, you know, a couple hundred dollars a month into a health savings account. You can then buy in whatever insurance you want with that. That type of scheme, I think, is is much more practical than, um, you know, your local hospital down the road being run by 
you know, you're, you're um, in Oklahoma city or whatever. Right. Yeah. Like, I, I don't, I don't think that's practical. I, I, I do believe in institutions in terms of like businesses and corporations being, you know, you know, I don't want all the power to be like, I think you would agree with being centralized by the government. We have businesses and organizations. America is strong because we have, you know, a million different organizations spread across a million different industries. And that, that, that real, that, that makes us stronger uh, and, and tougher. But when it comes to healthcare, the, our, our current system is like, we have like the worst of both worlds in a lot of respects. Like, I think most people, you know, Medicare is amazing for seniors. It's like oh, the best for them, but it would cost, it would cost a tremendous amount to make that like across the board. And there would be a lot of unintentional, unintentional consequences. So I guess for me, like part of, part of the, part of what I'm saying in this, this essay is that like, it is a societal good and it's a societal good if we, whether we like it or not, it like, you can hear that regardless if it under the current system that it's a societal good and then if it would socialized medicine it'd still be a societal good yeah i mean i think yeah, either way. it could be it could be in a capitalist system and still be a societal good so it's not it's that. not socialized or capitalism it's either societal good or or, or, or a private person and i believe it's it's healthcare is one of those things where it's a societal good we're all paying insurance premiums. We're all kind of in this together. I would be much happier paying my insurance premiums and never getting sick than being the person who is sick. And, you know, we kind of, as a society decide, okay, the person, the, the, the poor bastard who got cancer and who has $200,000 with the medical bills, we're going to help all subsidize that as a society because thankfully we don't have cancer. So like, it's just one of those things where like, I'll take, I'll take paying my insurance as long as I don't get cancer. And you know, as a society, we're like basically chipping in to pay for this other person. I got um three things that I just want to okay. speak about and mention, and then we'll move to the end. Um, yeah. The first one is I will, I don't know if you know this. So I take, I do not have a bachelor's degree. I do not. I'm currently yeah. still going to school. Yeah. And I took a class on public policy mm -hmm. and I go to a pretty liberal school and I'm a conservative in a liberal college. Sure. Um, so goods like Social Security, Medicare, Medicaid, unemployment, welfare, food stamps, we, of our budget, do you know how much of it goes towards that? Oh, I mean, it's a tremendous amount, like Social Security and- Yeah, it's Medicare 60%. And, yeah. Approximately 60% of our annual budget goes yeah. to entitlement benefits. Yeah. As we look at things like, because- Unfortunately, the topics that we're talking about aren't a single, like, do this and it'll change it action. There's yeah. not a single answer that's going to fix everything. Sure. If we broaden social medicine, then we lessen private industry, raise government power, and raise government spending. See, I, I guess I, I disagree with that sentiment. I think that the government can empower business and I think they can empower individuals. And I think business can can help society. So, I mean, like, I, 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 don't, I don't think like, you can grow the pie. Like, I think the government can accru accrue power, but at the same time, empower others. 
Like well, I mean, it's not, it's not like a, a government gets more power. It doesn't necessarily mean individuals and businesses will lose power. Is there corrupt politicians? Oh, I mean, yeah. I mean, we got okay. some. That is the problem there is that as government power grows, I will say the same thing I said earlier. Sure, it could grow and it yeah. could very, 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 very well. It could yeah. because that's I mean, what it looks good on paper. But the ambition of men yeah. and greed is going to get in the way of that. Eventually, it may not be today. It may yeah. not be tomorrow. It may not be 10 years from now. But the more and more you give government power, the more and more and more they're going to take rights from the private citizen. And I think yeah, it's I mean, a pendulum that right now, if we're over here, it's yeah. really, really good. But eventually that pendulum is going to swing the other direction. And is the person that's on the other side of that pendulum going to be good and not use that power for bad? I mean, it's just, if, do you have trust in democracy or not? I mean, like if, if you feel strongly for democracy, then I think in terms of like, then you should have some, you know, hope that the government can be functional. I mean, right now it's not very functional. Um, it's not very functional they, because the conversations that we're having now yeah. aren't happening in D.C. Yeah. That's why. Um, my next thing, I guess I would say, is that I'm going to offer you a um, an option, I guess yeah. you could say of what I think needs to happen. I just want to see if you agree or disagree. Sure. So right now, like you said, businesses, I'm sorry, not businesses, ed, or, uh, healthcare and insurance is tied to employment. Yeah. For the most part. If I want car insurance and I want to go to Milwaukee to get it, I can get it. Yeah. I can insure my car in Milwaukee. Yeah. If I want to have Pulte Mortgage cover my insurance for my house, I can have that, right? Insurance, health that, insurance is the only industry insurance-wide where you cannot cross state lines. It is bound to your state and your state alone. Yeah. So my, the option I would say is that bring back the government influence, bring back the government restriction on insurance and yeah. truly open the insurance market. Now that insurance company that's charging for instance, for me, I pay $196, I think, every two weeks from my and my wife's health insurance through my yeah. employer. It now has to compete with every single other competitor yeah. across the market. What yeah. that's going to, what's, you know what's going to happen. That's going to drive prices like exponentially yeah. lower while still remaining and drive up healthcare. So, so the consumer is going to get radically more for an exponentially lower rate. Yeah, I mean, I, I think more comp more competition is generally always better, right? But what, I think part of that problem, I think part of the reason why they do it that way is that, I mean, I actually, I think a better solution would be that some of our, some of our healthcare systems may frankly just need to get bigger. Like, you know, there's a Walmart in every single, you know, you know, United States or, you know, every state, right. There's not like where I go, there's a, a hospital called like Aurora. Like you, you probably have no idea, you know, there's no Aurora's by you. Right. Like it's just, it might be one of those industries that like there needs to be some consolidation 
And actually some of these firms maybe just need to get bigger and increase their scale. Um, I mean, I think the thing with insurance is that like, this is just kind of like a side theory that I, I kind of think like the reason why we have insurance for, and like, why don't we just like, you know, part of it is like, why don't I just make a deal with my hospital provider, right? Like, why can't I just go up to them and say, you know, cut out the insurance company to say, you know, insurance company, see ya, right? I don't need you. You're like, you're a middleman that I don't need, right? And just do business directly with their hospital. Just pay your monthly premium. You pay the hospital. If you pay the hospital $10,000 a year and I'm just going to do all my stuff at your hospital system, like, wouldn't that make, you know, wouldn't that feel good? Part of the reason why I don't think that that has come to pass, I would like to see that come to pass. The issue is you don't want your doctor have someone standing at the company going, why did you order this? Why did you do this? Like they would want to, in that scenario, they'd want to cut costs as much as possible and you'd get potentially less adequate care. So the insurance company is supposed to be a regulator in terms of the standardization of care. Now, I think eventually, hopefully we can move past that where we're all like, you know, we can get a standard level of care and we don't have to worry about if I'm getting bad care here or good care here. I mean, so. And there are always like, a difference in care just because some doctors yeah. are better trained than others. Yeah. I think yeah. That, yeah. That's true. Like to yeah. Pray. That's it. You can get good care, good car maintenance, or you can get shit yeah. car Yeah, I mean, the lack, the lack of transparency in the healthcare industry, I think is, especially in pricing, is just like really... That right there, sure, I will agree. I yeah. think that um, insurance companies, for instance, I, I had an ER visit once. Yeah. Tell me why. I, I didn't need two IVs. I didn't need it. Yeah. But they did it. And yeah. then like, I'm paying like, it was like $300 for like a needle. Yeah. Like why? Yeah. Like if you ask for an itemized receipt from your hospital, yeah. it's ridiculous the amount of like yeah. shit that we pay like, for. Like in theory, the health, the health, inc- the, the insurance company is supposed to be on your side and should like say why, you know, if you have health insurance, like you would think in theory, the health insurance company would say, Hey, you shouldn't be charging my client this because the insurance company ends up paying that, right? Like you pay a part of it but the insurance company at a certain point will pay some of it. So they, they should be on your side, right? Like, Hey, don't try- and I've made a pack together. Yeah, exactly. So like, yeah, that, that's why I think I, the healthcare, I think we have like the worst of both worlds and a lot of act. Uh, that's why I think the government could push or force this industry into some life because uh, right now it's stagnated. And we have like the worst of both worlds. And like, like, like I mentioned before, like since it's a societal good and that we have to basically pay for our other people's healthcare, whether we like it or not, there should be way more incentives to, if, if you treat your body well, you should get pay less on your healthcare. If you don't, you should have to pay more uh, by, yeah. Well, I, I will say that I don't know what, what your editors or your better readers were saying, but I think that it's a good argument. And I think that it's, you have it well articulated. I will, I will end that. Unfortunately that I am not swayed. I still believe that. Um, Just get, you're going to have to think about it overnight. You're going to go home and you're thinking think about, about it. You're like, Dan, Dan, that guy was fucking smart. Healthcare is a societal good. I'll take a loss on this one. And then <laughs> next week 
you know, then you can start thinking about, you know, once you have this healthcare as a societal good point, then you can like fix it from there. You can go on your own path, but we'll just start there and you'll be good. Well, I, I will first say that I appreciate you coming on the show, I guess. Yeah. And I, and what day for all the viewers, can they, can they pre-order your book now? Yeah, it's, it's available for, for pre-order. I appreciate any pre-order as it like the Amazon algorithm has a boner if you pre-order. So, but otherwise it'll be available July 29th. Uh, the book is called Political Acceptance, a Millennial Manifesto. And Everybody, talk, I, yeah, go ahead. I was going to tell them, I will leave a link down below in the show yeah. notes directly to his book if you want to get a copy of it. Yeah. Yeah, and there's uh there's two two essays on race that we didn't talk about, but uh, I think those are kind of a doozy and really awesome to read too. That uh, uh, so at least you'll have something to look forward to. Guys, I will tell you that Dan was very very nice to give me the opportunity to get a sneak peek into his book. And as you guys heard today, we agree on things, we disagree on things, but that's what's nice about America, right? Is that yeah. we can sit here and have this conversation and disagree and that's a hundred percent okay and so sometimes your best offense is is reading and finding out the best way to go about things and the only way that you're going to have change is to have open-minded and be open-minded about things and you'll learn different things from reading different authors and different different like perspectives on how things are seen through people's eyes so, like I said, guys, I will leave a description down below for you to pick up a copy of his book. Like I said, from what I read, it's phenomenal. Go ahead and get yourselves a copy. Dan, I have done a lot of interviews, um, not a lot on my show, but out of everyone that I've done on my show from the time up to my break until now, this has definitely been probably my favorite one to do. And so, okay, cool. I, Appreciate I that. thank you for one, sticking to your guns and not. Caving because I have a lot of um, people who just cave and whether it just be they don't like confrontation or whatever it is. I think that it's good conversation happens when you have two stark advocates for two different opinions. And second, it's just been great talking with you, man. So I wish you the best of luck on your book, the best of luck on your endeavors, and that I hope that it works out for you. Appreciate it, John. Thanks for having me.